0: Hi, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation with my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with the wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. This week, we talk horror. The new versions of Halloween, directed by David Gordon Green...
1: Testing 1, 2, 3. We're on. We're here to investigate a patient that killed three innocent teenagers on Halloween in 1978. He was shot by his own psychiatrist and taken into custody that night. And has spent the last 40 years in captivity. Hello, Michael.
2: I have something you might like to see
0: and Suspiria, directed by Luca Guadagnino, take unique approaches to the genre, its history, and where it can go.
2: At the
1: beginning, she gave me things. Perfect balance. Perfect sleep. She wants to get inside of me. I can feel her.
0: Likewise, the new Netflix series, The Haunting of Hill House, created by Mike Flanagan from the novel by Shirley Jackson, pushes the boundaries of horror for the home screen.
1: Now I want you two to get good rest.
2: What if I have a bad dream? Well, I'm sure we can
1: handle any dream you have.
2: What if I dream that you sent us away into the dark and we get hurt? Really hurt? (laughs) And what if I'm so sad and scared of the dark out there that I put poison in me?
0: Now, many of us watch horror movies all year long. But for those who like only the spooky season to be the time they talk about these kind of movies... It's understandable. But at the same time, there are no, two not. movies in particular, uh, David Gordon Green's remake of Halloween and then Luca Guadagnino's remake of Suspiria that really are just a fantastic leaping off point for talking about sort of horror in 2018. And so joining me in that conversation, I, am, I have here.
3: I'm Libby Hill. I'm an entertainment reporter for the LA Times. Jen Yamato, a film reporter who likes horror and watches it year
1: round.
2: And I'm Justin Chang, film critic for the LA Times, and I don't think I became really a horror fan until I became a film critic and had little choice but to (laughs) watch a lot of scary movies that nobody else wanted to review (laughs) or write about. And so here we are.
0: Now, maybe as a way to sort of get us into this conversation, Jen, I'm going to go big picture here and just ask you, why horror? What is it that you in particular like about horror movies that makes you a fan all the time?
1: Why horror is I believe the title of the actual story I wrote this time last year for, for Halloween time when I asked many genre filmmakers what it was about horror that drew them and that lit up their lives and their souls. And the answer, which I agree with is that confronting our fears is a very uh, human, natural impulse and curiosity and horror does that in a safe space which is on the screen that's part of the reason why i like the genre i also like outlandish things which this is arguably the most outlandish over the top um gory visceral and i think cathartic sometimes genre that we have why certain people like different subgenres is i think a very personal thing like why do people like splatter gore Or why did people like, um, you know, haunted house movies so much? Why do those resonate with us so much that they've been making them for generations? I think that's almost a personal thing.
0: Libby, tell me a little bit about kind of your relationship to horror and why you think it's sort of an eternal topic.
3: You know, I love hate, hate love horror, it's not something that I seek out, but when I get feedback that, you know, something is a must-see, something, you know, captures the zeitgeist of the moment, that's something I want to get in on. But what I always love about horror is that is a lot of what Jen said. It's giving us a arena to talk about things that we aren't always comfortable talking about. Specifically for me, I really love how it digs into personal relationships, the difficulties between them, and how often The horror manifests problems in relationships that we're usually not untangling, but specifically like mental illness. Mental illness is um, something that horror gets into a lot under the guise of possession or something horrible. And that, especially for a topic that we never get into really in film, is something that I always turn to horror for.
0: Justin, I know you reviewed the new Halloween for the paper. And so can you tell us a little bit about the new version and specifically kind of like how the filmmakers on this one, how they it kind of relates to the the venerable franchise?
2: Yes. One of the amusing and somewhat shrewd gambits of the new movie is that they have basically pretended that the last 40 years of Halloween – reboots and sequels and offshoots just didn't happen so it's kind of you know it's very much a retcon sequel not the first time that that's happened within this franchise but they have basically just said okay this is 40 years later from from halloween night 1978 when john carpenter's you know masterpiece as if nothing has really happened since then and so it's catching you up with the characters now and so jamie lee curtis is this you know she's kind of become the wild-haired town crackpot but she's completely right. I mean, it's not paranoia. She is absolutely one hundred percent right that Michael Myers is going to bust out of prison, of course. Again, and now she has you know a daughter from whom she's estranged because she's sort of you know was a very you know was an intense <laughs> helicopter parenting to the max, I guess you could say, um, and and a, and a granddaughter who's a teenager, you know, much as uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character was in the original. So. I know we're going to get into a larger discussion of the movie. I just think I was kind of tickled just by the idea that they have basically like they've taken the extremely predictable, formulaic, repetitive nature of horror franchising and kind of almost turned it into a virtue by saying this is going to happen. It's like and it's it's just (laughs) the whole movie is basically fan service. It's callbacks. It's allusions to the original. And I think it largely works pretty well as sort of, you know, it's a way of giving you, you know, kind of catering to the fans, pandering to the fans in a way. But in the guise of a structure that I think makes some thematic sense. Yeah, I think you're right. It's a really
1: interesting way to refresh a franchise that had become tired. I think in generations past, like in the by the time we got to the 90s and the aughts, Franchises, especially genre franchises became just all you could do is go further and bigger and crossover and Alien versus Predator and Alien versus Predator 2. And like, how do you reset from that? And this is how you do it. You literally reset. You go, well, we're going to choose to forget Halloween H2O and Season of the Witch and all these other things, all these other stories, uh, corners of the original canonical f- universe and streamline it to the base. Sort of nemesis relationship. That is what was so resonant, and that is it turns into um, Michael Myers versus Laurie Strode.
0: Jen, you and I attended the Midnight World premiere of the new Halloween during the Toronto Film Festival. And I recall during the Q&A after that, that Jamie Lee Curtis, the iconic star of the the franchise who's returned to the role, that she used the word trauma multiple times. And that seems to have really been, especially for her and returning to the character, kind of the real watchword of what it's kind of about for her. And is that in fact like a new addition to what the franchise and the story of Laurie Strode is about? Or do you think that element of it, like dealing with trauma and sort of living through something, has that essentially always been the core idea of what Halloween was about?
1: I think that her calling that out as, the driving thematic force for her was really helpful to put that in the conversation. Because through that lens you can view a lot of horror movies, so-called final girl movies even, as survivor stories, trauma stories. But she specifically puts a lot of emphasis on the trauma that Laurie Strode went through in the first film that she's lived with for years. That has shaped who the Laurie Strode is that we see in this Halloween. So I think it's a really valuable way to to focus on an aspect of horror storytelling. Like Libby, you mentioned like how mental illness can be a really rich sort of metaphorical ground to explore in a really, I think, valuable way. I think it's the same for this Halloween.
3: Honestly, you're keying in on on my favorite aspect of the latest Halloween, which is that idea of trauma, because in psychology, there is something that they're studying called epigenetic trauma, which is that our genes are literally changed by traumatic events um, suffered by our ancestors. So in this film, you have Laurie Strode who went through this horrific singular event when she was a teenager and then she had a daughter and then she had a granddaughter. And then by the end of this film, or at some point in this film, you have all three of them in a room together and, and here they are facing this trauma face to face. There's something so moving about that and and, and so big and real and, and that keys into the weird family dynamics that really all of us have on some level but it blows it up into something so extreme but still so so visceral
2: yeah and maybe we should just get into it because i think the fact that this is such a an unusually powerful and resonant story of a female trauma survivor's survival that there has been this debate especially in recent days over why wasn't a woman employed to write co-write Direct this movie, which was directed by David Gordon Green and co written by him. And
1: produced by Blumhouse.
2: Produced by Blumhouse. And he co wrote it with Danny McBride, his longtime collaborator. And it's interesting because I think it's a valid question that arises out of the fact that the movie goes to this place that it, it didn't have to go. All credit to it for going there and for doing, I think, a pretty creditable job of. Taking Laurie Strode's trauma and the ramifications of that quite seriously within a genre context, but it's a discussion very much. Halloween worth
1: producer Jason Blum, whose company Blumhouse is, you know, the hottest non-major studio producer of horror movies and horror franchises, uh, Insidious, The Purge, etc. He, I believe, and he's he has since apologized for this and reconsidered his choice of words the day Halloween premiered, saying that women directors don't want to direct horror. Women are just not as interested in horror. Otherwise, they would have met with them. And that is just, I mean, it rightfully set off the film community because there are plenty of female storytellers, filmmakers, writers, directors who would a 1,000% like a shot at directing a movie like the Halloween movie, a shot at even getting an independent film financed, But in this town, it's still, no matter how much we keep talking about being inclusive behind the camera and in front of the screen and giving women, you know, consideration to be hired as writers or directors, that just isn't happening. And so I think it's a fortunate thing that Jason Blum's misspeaking led to a bigger conversation because we should be having that conversation. And every single horror movie— that is about to come out or, you know, all the major horror movies of the season involve female protagonists. They are female stories, but I believe all of them are told by men.
0: Libby, can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, it's interesting not to sort of get ahead of ourselves, but Suspiria that we're also been talking about is an, just like with Halloween, it's a movie where in its original incarnation was co-written by a woman. And now in this current remake incarnation has been written by men, directed by men, and yet still have female protagonists. And what to you does it kind of mean, especially in 2018, sort of the cultural context that we're living in, when men try to tell women's stories and to to some extent even think they're doing a good thing or the right thing, and yet what they maybe really should be doing is providing the platform for a woman to be telling this story? Or what do you think it means to have You know, men trying to tell these stories in 2018.
3: Well, you know, you want to give them a pat on the head, and it's like, okay, you're trying, like you tried it. That's not enough, and it's it's that conversation we've always been having about inclusivity. Like, in front of the camera is fine. That is one aspect of it, but until we get the behind the camera stuff being wholly inclusive, people telling their own stories, their own versions of their stories, then nothing is really going to change. Especially in the context of 2018 as a year, I'm finding it increasingly difficult to go into these projects, even as they're fronted by women and think, okay, but, what would this look like with more female involvement on the back end? When I look at Halloween and I have issues with some of the storytelling choices, I have issues with some of the framing, I go back and be like, okay, maybe it wouldn't have changed anything, but what if they had had a woman's point of view on this when they were trying to craft this aspect of the story? It's not a great way to be looking at your culture, but it's inevitable at this point because why aren't women telling these stories? We've finally think that women are able to carry films. We finally realized that people are interested in stories about women. So let women tell them.
0: Libby, to sort of bring this back to Halloween in the specific, can you talk a little bit more about the way in which the new film creates these three female characters and there's there is this sense of like generations of trauma and then how that kind of relates to michael myers because one thing that's interesting is that some of the previous versions the rob zombie versions of halloween in particular tried to focus on michael and like what was wrong with michael and this new film very specifically even though he's in a mental institution at the beginning of the film and they talk about how he's been you know studied and for many, many years, it doesn't really get into like what's wrong with Michael. And how do you kind of feel about how the new movie deals with the character of Michael in relation to what it sets up with the women?
3: Well, I think that that's one of the things that I had a little bit of an issue with. And before I go too much farther on that, remind me I have something to say about the inclusivity of trying to get women directors in there as it relates to TV. But yeah, that's one of the things that I liked and also took issue with in the new Halloween is so spoilers, I guess, for the new Halloween. Um, there are podcasters who <laughs> are focused, hyper focused on getting into the mind of this killer and trying to understand him and humanize him. And, uh, Michael also has a doctor who wants to understand him and, and they sort of worship Michael in this otherworldly sense. And it, it is clear to me, it feels very much like Green and McBride are trying to do almost a send-up of the the Rob Zombie versions. They're like, whoa, hyper-masculinity. Settle down. And I get it. And I appreciate it. But also, it feels sort of like a uh, sort of ham-fisted. It's very obvious. And it's very, it's just ugly the way they do it. The way they attack Lori. Like, maybe you too are the monster because you were attacked. And That's not unrealistic as to how we treat victims of trauma in the real world. And I appreciate that. But I feel like there was some level of nuance there that, again, maybe a woman would have been able to stand out the edges on.
0: It's interesting. I spoke to Green about the film, and he said that the way they dealt with the character of Michael is to just give him nothing. They specifically wanted him to have seemingly no thoughts, no motivation, nothing. And in fact, they really debated strongly a moment in the film, spoiler alert, where there's a an infant in a crib and Michael yes. walks by. And the th- when I saw the movie with a, a public audience, someone in the crowd audibly gasped and said, no, 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 no. And Michael just passes the the baby by, does not, kill the infant. And David said they really debated on that baby, what Michael should, should do. And if anything, he likes the fact that it gives Michael just an inkling of like thought or feeling. So he's not just a mindless killing machine. He actually did make a decision in that one instance. And with that, let's take a short break. This is Chris Gofford with the Los Angeles Times. I want to share some exciting
2: news. Bravo is turning Dirty John into a limited TV series, starring Connie Britton as Deborah Newell and Eric Bana as John Meehan. It's a scripted dramatic series based on the Dirty John podcast and my newspaper series, a tangled story of love, family, deception, and survival. Catch the new series premiering November 25th at 10 p.m., 9 central,
0: only on Bravo. And now we're back. I want to be sure that we move on, to start talking about Suspiria as well, because I think, Jen, I remember you wrote a really terrific piece uh, a little while back about the sort of different approaches that both Halloween and Suspiria, the creators of these movies, were taking to the idea of a remake. And so for you, what is Suspiria doing as a strategy that's different from what my god! If you think
1: the new Halloween is different from the old Halloween, wait till you see Suspiria 2018. (laughs) Luca Guadagnino and his collaborator, the writer, David Kajanik, who is lovely and very thoughtful. Uh, I spoke with him uh, a couple months ago about this, and they've loaded so much into this vision of Suspiria, which is also not quite a remake because it's not identical to the original. It's not a sequel. It's it is more of a re-envisioning, a new imagining. And I think it's very interesting to approach something like this, which the original Dario Argento 1977 Suspiria is a beloved cult movie among horror fans and fans of the Italian giallo subgenre. It is iconic in its in its visual style and its flair and its music, but not so much for its story. So it's kind of interesting that all of the iconic elements of the original Suspiria are the things that the, that Luca Guadagnino and David Kajanik sort of did away with while keeping the recognizable bones of the story and paying homage to Argento's Three Mothers trilogy in how they constructed this new vision of Suspiria. So, if you're a Suspiria fan, you will recognize a lot of shout-outs, you'll recognize a lot of similar structure and themes, but it's a really interesting way to put a new lens on not just a story, but the entire phenomenon of it.
0: And Justin, I think you've seen the new film as well. Yeah, I think that it's so
2: fascinating to see how Guadagnino has basically shown his reverence for the original by departing from it in like almost every way. The new movie is more than two and a half hours long. It runs a full hour longer it's than. Only Dario two Argento's and a half movie. hours. <laughs> only no. And considering, you know, for the most, it's, it's a six part movie plus an epilogue. And for all that, it actually, I mean, it definitely has parts where you can lose the threads because there are a lot of threads in the movie. But for the most part, I was completely held by it. And the color scheme alone, I mean, Argento's movie was just this lurid, you know, candy apple reds and like velvety blue shadows, beautiful, just gorgeous, you know, kind of Art Nouveau production design. And this one, you know, which is visually very much influenced by the German director, Rainer Werner Fassbinder, very gray, beige, almost it's like, it's almost like the Romanian remake. Of, of, you know, except it's set in, in Berlin, uh, 1977 Berlin, uh, remake of Suspiria. So he's, he's sort of drained away all this color and it just, to a large extent, he's drained away the scares. This is not a very scary movie. It's eerie and unsettling throughout, but this is, there are not many jump scares. There are moments when it's grisly and brutal, but it, it's not really I'm trying to scare you that kind of thing. Even the final kind of culmination is one of is just shocking and astonishing, but it's not it's seeking a different reaction and it's an interesting movie to talk about in light of the, the Halloween follow-up because both of these movies I think have taken this notion of of femininity or feminism and grounded it in a in a in a very deep way and you know the first spirit was of course almost all women and this one is too, but they've sort of <sighs> The the story that's being told in this movie is so strange and I kind of just love it for going there. I think it's interesting because, spoiler alert, definitely, because the witch's coven in this movie is not entirely a bad thing. It's almost, it's sympathetic to this idea, this, this, this kind of like, I call it in my review, this sort of like stronghold of the unholy feminine that becomes like this stronghold against the wars and the police state and the wars that mortal men have fought and so you see like generations of women dating back to antiquity who are like passing down these rituals through dance through modern well now modern dance you know and it's like they're it's like this sort of this magic that they're working against the horrors of the world
0: Libby, to sort of get you back into the conversation a little bit, I want to be sure that we talk somewhat about horror on TV and the way that people deal with it there. And there's been a new show that just came out on Netflix, The Haunting of Hill House, that in the way that Netflix shows seem to do has just really captured the imagination of a lot of people. And it seems like it's a lot of people are talking about it, are very excited about it right now. And I know that you're a fan as well. And it was created by Mike Flanagan. It's based on the novel by Shirley Jackson. And can you tell us a little bit more about what it is about... The haunting of hill house that maybe is exciting to people within this context that we're talking about of like horror in 2018
3: well listen i've watched a fair number of american horror story ryan murphy shows but uh, um, haunting of hill house is the first television series that i've had to watch like through my fingers because I am a face coverer when I'm watching horror. Like I was watching Halloween last night. I covered my face for, you know, a good portion of it. Hill House is the first time I've I've done that with television. And I think a lot of it is is set on pacing. You'll see a lot of complaints that it's too slow. It's set between two timelines and the single family who lived in a haunted house and then 30 years later in the present day are still dealing with the trauma of Living in that house. So as you can see, I'm very interested in like repeating themes in, in, in my horror. Oh, and as for anyone who doesn't know what it's
1: about, Haunting of Hill House is let's see, the I guess the log line would be a family of grown siblings, five of them, too many for you to be able to discern from each other until a couple episodes in, deal with the hidden traumas of a shared experience from when they were children living in a mansion that their parents were restoring.
3: I don't care for ghosts. I find oh my them, god! There's so many ghosts. There's so many ghosts in Haunting of Hill House. It's very, it's very upsetting. There's a lot of, a lot <laughs> yeah. of hidden ghosts, a la like The Exorcist, which is not okay. But <laughs> the because, kind of genius in oh, how they absolutely. do that. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like that lends a lot to the atmospheric nature of horror that I think a lot of other horror on TV misses. They're building. Not necessarily elaborate scares, but very subtle subconscious scares, and it just keeps you on edge. It's also very languid. You're going to see a lot of complaints about people saying it's too slow, but it's building a lot of mood. And I think, especially for a Netflix audience which is binging, it's very much building that anticipation of of like fear and and dread
0: but i think also very much for our home audience the show has to become this thing that you live with like you want it to have this i think probably more, as you say, languid pacing, because of the fact that, like, whether you're binging it or watching it, like, piecemeal, I think it's this thing that sort of coexists with you in your life, in your home, for some period of time, as opposed to just the, like, bang of the head that a a movie can be.
1: Right. And you're watching it in your house on Netflix by yourself in the dark.
3: Exactly. So you have these people, specifically me, who are (laughs) at war with themselves because... All they want to do is watch this show. But inevitably, the only time you have time is like 10 p.m. at night. You know, you finished with a work day and then you have to stay up 45 minutes later and watch YouTube videos of puppies to make it safe (laughs) to go to sleep. And that's a lot of time out of your schedule. But it gets under your skin. For me, one of the most compelling things about the show is how this trauma has fractured this family in ways that they don't even understand. And seeing each other is a constant reminder of what they have gone through and what they refuse to deal with. Mm-hmm. And, and um, it's really insightful as far as like the sort of PTSD of our histories that we don't ever deal with because theoretically we don't have to.
0: Now, Libby, the issues of inclusivity and like sort of who's in charge, both behind the camera and in the stories that are being told, are those things that are coming up in TV and as people are talking about TV horror in the same way that they are with the movies that we're talking about?
3: Absolutely. Not so much necessarily in TV horror, just because there's not as much TV horror out there. But let's go back to Ryan Murphy. Ryan Murphy. Who's probably producing the most horror content on television. (laughs) Right. Ryan Murphy has, and forgive me if I facts are a little fuzzy here, has instituted, I believe it's a, it's called 5050. And it's a goal that by 2020, I think that all of his productions have no more than 50% straight white dudes on a staff. So he's looking, looking to bring in inclusivity not just in front of the camera, but behind it. Like, his most recent project was Pose, which featured the largest amount of transgender actors in TV history. Also, it's so good. And Pose so is so good. so good. It's so good. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, Murphy TV... And specifically, Ryan Murphy is showing that it can be done. You have to push maybe a step further to find the people whose resumes aren't already on your desk. He's specifically trying to make Jen's aforementioned list longer. And that's something that Jason Blum could learn a lot from.
1: I find interesting about Hill House and Netflix episodics. In general, that when I really, really get into a show, particularly on Netflix, because I'm binging it and I'm like a captive audience in my own home and I'm obsessing like Glow, I pay more attention to who writes episodes of TV that I'm watching than I used to. And arguably the best episode of The Haunting of Hill House, all of which I believe are directed by Mike Flanagan, episode five is written by a woman, Meredith Averill. So it's interesting for me that TV can be this sort of more potent breeding ground for women, writers at least, um, and often directors like Glow, for example, having experience under their belt that maybe they can then use to get meetings with a Jason Blum if they have a feature project or something like that, you know?
3: And the other thing to remember about Hill House is that it's coming from source material from a woman, a very insightful, a very socially aware woman in Shirley Jackson, who's made this, who wrote this novel that's withstood what feels like hundreds of adaptations and always gives us something entertaining and insightful.
1: For me, Hill House, what really makes it penetrate to my bones are those ghosts that you do not realize are there it's it, actually i think it's the most brilliant thing about that show is that after you watch an episode if you go back and like look up stills from that episode you see hidden ghosts everywhere like behind in the in the deep deep background and then you're like oh my god looking around my kitchen are there ghosts behind the refrigerator and then you cannot ever not think of that
3: that's legitimately the same as when you think you see something out of the corner of your eye mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. convince yourself it's a person, you look again and it's not there. And Hill House, it's always a person. They're slightly out of focus in the they're deep background. Watching. They're always watching. And if you get distracted in a scene by something that looks like it might be a person, it's absolutely a person and that person is dead and they're probably coming to kill your uh-huh. family.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, yep.
0: Yep. I want to be sure, as we wrap up our conversation today, I would like to hear from each of you a horror recommendation for our listeners. Something either that's like a personal favorite or something that maybe you think people may not have seen or might have overlooked. Justin, do you have something you'd like to shout out to the people? Yeah, I've recommended it many
2: times before, and I think I'll just keep doing it. It's it's apropos, I think, to our discussion about feminism, or in this case, stealth feminism in, in the horror genre. It's Audition, yeah. Takashi Miike's 1999 masterpiece, Mikay is, of course, hugely uh, hugely prolific Japanese filmmaker. He's made a lot of junk, and he's made some really great films too. And Audition is one of them. I mean, it starts off as this, like you know, deceptively kind of sedate, quiet Ozu movie, and it morphs into something that should not be given away. I will just say it's one of those movies that feels genuinely transgressive in the way that it breaks a contract with the viewer and um and has a lot to say a lot a lot to say about how women especially you know seemingly demure dainty women have been treated in japan and by extension all over the world it's a great movie it's i think it's on shutter if you have if you can stream it on amazon prime on shutter if you have that
3: shutter so great
2: libby do you have
0: something you'd like to shout out to people i
3: have two because I am bad at instructions. So my one of the movies that got under my skin unlike any other, like, is probably my scariest film, is about a bunch of women. Yeah. Trapped in a cave. Uh, um yes. Yeah. The descent. Yeah. Uh, it's another one that is laden with personal and emotional and complex relationships. And also they're trapped in a cave with a bunch of monsters. There, there you go.
0: And also, that film, I believe, was directed by Neil Marshall, who's gone yes. on to do a lot of work on Game of Thrones. So, if you're a person who watches Game of Thrones, you really should also catch up on The Descent.
3: Right. And also, in our conversation, I will say that there was a horror film I saw last year. It got under my skin, literally. And that's Raw, directed by a woman, written by a woman. Mm-hmm. And um, she is French, I believe. And Julia I, I cannot know. Thank you. Yes. Pronounce her name. That's another one with a so complex family relationship that examines how we destroy ourselves and each other. Also sisters. Also sisters.
0: And Jen, what would you like to spotlight for people?
1: Well, I would like to not apologize for even being even worse because I have three. <laughs> I have three recommendations. Um <laughs> Uh, because I'm going to just uh, shout out a, a series I have coming up, an interview series I'm doing pre-Halloween, so look for it in the next few days. Catching up with three iconic women of horror. I've spoken with Jessica Harper, the original star of Suspiria, who is also in the new Suspiria. She also started. in a cult movie called Phantom of the Paradise. So she has a huge cult following, even if she doesn't necessarily consider herself a horror star. Another one is is Barbara Crampton, who is an actress I adore. She starred in Reanimator from Beyond and really... Thought that her acting days were over until she got a call to be in Adam Wingard's Year Next, which has, she says, totally revitalized not just her career, but her passion for movie making. And now she's producing and working with a lot of up-and-coming indie genre filmmakers. And then the third person I interviewed was Heather Langenkamp, star of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, a.k.a. Nancy. She now runs a really cool effects shop in Los Angeles with her husband and is just a really cool lady.
0: That's exciting, and I uh, I'm just going to quickly mention one film myself, a classic, the 1962 movie *Carnival of Souls*, directed by Herc Harvey, the greatest movie ever made in Lawrence, Kansas, and uh, <laughs> and it's it's one thing. Part of the reason, though, that I I wanted to spotlight this is that recently there was the Argentine director Lucrecia Martel was giving an interview where she was. Picking some favorite movies of hers, and she spotlighted Carnival of Souls. And she just said a wonderful thing about it, which was simply that this is what all filmmakers need to remember to make just one film like this is enough. So that if you can sort of touch greatness like Carnival of Souls, as strange and as beautiful and as wonderful it is, just once in your life, you can feel like it's all kind of been worthwhile. And I found that really inspiring. And so, Libby, tell folks where they can uh, find your work online.
3: Ah, you can find me on the L.A. Times, but more interestingly, you can find me on Twitter at Midwest Spitfire. Jen? I'm Jenny Yamato. You can find me at, at Jen Yamato. Shockingly.
0: I'm Justin Chang. You can find me at Justin C. Chang. And you can find me at Indie Focus. And so for L.A. Times, Studios, and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening.